Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Out With Susie Ruffle. This is Series 2, Episode 9. Uh, first of all, I would like to say a massive thank you to everyone that got in touch after last week's episode with the Reverend Richard Coles. I absolutely loved that episode. I thought it was a really special one and it seems that lots of you did too. So thank you for so many of you that got in touch, um, either on Twitter, Instagram, via email or left a lovely review. Uh, it's all noticed and massively appreciated. So thank you for that. Um how's your week been? I hope yours has been okay. I've had more of a tricky week, if I'm honest. Um, and, and it's, and it's all my own fault, which is the most annoying thing. I was, I was recording a TV show in Bristol on Monday and I drove my car into, um, into a wall, basically into a part of a wall that I didn't see and smashed the whole of my back rear view mirror whilst I was in Bristol, which meant that I went and did the recording, tried to get my window fixed in Bristol. No one could help me. I had a small cry in a car park and then it was suggested to me that I cover the back of my car in cling film, which I did, um, which I mean, was an interesting look down the M4 back home. And now it's been, um, sort of a comedy of errors of me trying to get this window fixed and currently we're still not entirely sure what's going to happen with it but what I do know is that I'm going to have to spend loads of money to sort it out which is a real pain um but yeah it just oh it just it just meant that my whole week's just been um lots of things I've had to change and not been able to do and it's just been a bit of a faff but here we are I'm talking to you a lot. I'm doing one of my favourite jobs of the week, which is the top of the show. I've just got to listen back to the interview that I had with our amazing guest today, Juno Dawson. So that's been a, a lovely thing to do to, to listen to it again and get ready to share it with you all. So thanks for um, listening. I know that we're getting new listeners all the time at the minute. So if you're one of those new listeners, don't worry. This podcast is not about the fact that I'm a bit of a calamity Jane. Um, and have smashed my car window not only smashed my car window I also cut my hand in three places and I just burnt it getting some cheese on toast out of the oven I mean I'm all over the shop this week guys someone send help please but but hello if you're new to the podcast this isn't what it's all about it is uh, an interview show and uh, we'll get to that in just a moment but as always at the top of the show I share some um, some letters and I always say letters and we all know it's emails some emails that have been sent in from our wonderful listeners um, thank you for getting in touch if you have. Uh, the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Do feel free to send me. Um, you can send me something you do want to read out. You can send me things that you don't want me to read out. You can just share with me. And just to let you know, there's lots of you that have written really personal letters recently about things that you've got over or tricky times that you've had. And I'm not sharing those emails on the podcast, but I do want you to know that I have read them and I'm hugely moved that the podcast has been um, there for you. And for me, sometimes um, podcasts and books actually feel a bit like friends. And so if this podcast has been that to you, I'm really delighted that it has. And I'm really, I'm really grateful for those of you that have sent in letters. And I'm just grateful if you're listening. So thanks for that. And let's, let's get on with the emails. So the first one is from someone that has asked not to be named. So I won't. Hi, Susie. I'm sure every message starts with this but thanks so much for taking the time to make the podcast. Each Sunday evening, I suddenly remember I've got a new one to listen to and go for a long walk to enjoy it. I only wish you were somehow able to make twice as many as a week is a very long time. 
I never write into anything, but the feeling of community you've created seems to have inspired me. I'm a lesbian in my late 20s, and I only realised this about myself in the past few years. This often makes me feel slightly separate from the rest of the LGBTQIA community, as there seems to be an understanding that the majority of people realise their non-straight sexuality in their teens, whether they come out or not. While others have relationships with people of the opposite sex before realising in their life that they're not straight, I feel like I fall through the gap in between. This is melodramatic, I'm sure there's millions of other people in my position. But I suppose my point is, is that it doesn't feel like there is. Growing up, I had no idea I wasn't straight, or at least no conscious idea. But I didn't have any relationships with boys, as this was just something that didn't interest me at all. Then when I was about 20, I saw a proper storyline about a lesbian couple on TV. I still didn't realise anything consciously, but I gradually started to seek out more shows with queer relationships in it. I even started to call my family to recommend they watch various lesbian couples on first dates because they were so obviously the best ones. Without it occurring to me, I liked them because I was finally seeing people that I could relate to. It seems so stupid now, but I genuinely had no clue why I was into all of this. Anyway, I made it in the end. And finally, when I was about 23, it hit me that I was gay. And that was it. I never had the slightest issue about accepting myself once I'd realised. Not for a second did I think I wish I was straight. But the biggest frustration I have is that I spent all this time growing up not being myself because I didn't realise what being myself was. I've changed so much as a person in the last few years. I've become more confident, more sociable and open. And I wish I'd had the chance to be this person when I was at school and especially when I was at university. Representation is so, so important. If only I'd had the chance to see proper storylines about a lesbian relationship when I was 10 rather than 20, then maybe I could have been myself sooner. I realise this is all pretty speculative, and also I try not to dwell on it, but I do still think about it a lot. I hope that every child growing up now sees people like them. As it turns out, it's a super important part of working out who you are. Anyway, that's it. I'm sorry it was so long, but thanks for providing a load of great representation via your podcast. And I think what I was trying to say is if you do have any guests coming up who have experienced realising their sexuality in their 20s or beyond, then I'd be particularly excited to hear from them. Whether you do or not, I'm looking forward to continuing to hear so many, many more episodes. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for sending that in and the reason that I wanted to share that is that I, I have an idea for a guest who is one of my friends who is someone that uh, came out much later and so I'm gonna have a chat to them and see if they'll come on the show um, I think you're absolutely right it's really important that we see representation that we see ourselves everywhere actually Juno and I talk about this in this episode if if you can't you can't be what you can't see and I think it's probably a feeling that that's shared by many people that listen to this podcast but it's it is a really good thing to highlight and uh, and I, I agree with you I really hope that people that are growing up now that see more representation so they can you know they can work out who they are who they are sooner thank you so much for writing in and I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to get in touch with my friend today and see if she wants to do the show and hopefully she will okay on to another email Hi Susie, I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now, ever since I discovered it through my Spotify suggestions. Clearly it knows I'm gay. And I want to say thank you so, so much to you and all your guests for the honest, insightful and vulnerable conversations you've had in every single episode. They've been unique and special in their own way, and they've given me a sense of community while shielding for the last seven months. I grew up in a very straight cis environment, and for a long time, even up to the age of 15, I just felt different than everybody else. I didn't really know what gayness was, let alone that I would identify with it, but I just knew, age 12, that I loved Beyonce and Britney. This was the I am Sasha Fierce blackout slash circus era. We were truly blessed. (laughs) It wasn't until around my 16th birthday in 2012 that I finally realized I was gay. I didn't publicly come out to everyone until I was 20. Looking back now, I realized I felt a lot of shame about my identity even when I hadn't fully processed who I was. Before I knew I was gay, I had internalised the knowledge that it was shameful to be gay. In the four years since coming out, though, the shame has morphed into pride, not least thanks to plenty of therapy. I've spent a lot of time educating myself on the history, culture and politics of people just like you and me, or, if you like, catching up with all those parts of identity and community that most people get to find out when they're teenagers. 
So thank you for bringing this together with such a great range of LGBTQIA plus experiences in such a thoughtful and authentic way through a podcast. Thank you very much for saying that. Back to the email. I'm also writing specifically in response to the most recent episode with the Reverend Richard Coles. I was brought up in the Church of England, studied theology at university and spent roughly three years of my life between the ages of about 19 to 22 exploring a vocation in ordination. I also worked for a C of E church during this period. However, I went the opposite way to Richard and ended up not only saying no to ordination, but leaving the church altogether about a year ago. I realised I didn't want to spend my time in an institution that doesn't truly value me for my full self. That's not to say there aren't great people in the church. There are many wonderful LGBTQIA plus Christians, not least Richard and Baroness Ruth Hunt, and I admire those who stay so greatly. However, the institution's discrimination was way too much for me to handle. Nowadays, if someone asks, I generally describe myself as non-religious, mainly because I'm not sure of what I believe. Ironic through a theology grad, right? Spend 36 grand on a degree and come out with the answer, hmm, not sure, come back to me later. I guess what I'm trying to say is throughout all of this is to thank you for including, firstly, a diverse range of experiences, but more specifically, the experiences of religious LGBTQIA plus people on the podcast. I think it's very easy to split the gay, bi, trans, etc. experience into one neat thing, which is super unhelpful and reductive, as you and your guests have demonstrated through the past few series. It's also very easy to paint LGBTQIA plus people and religious people as being two different groups, when in fact they overlap a lot. So thank you for this. I can't wait to hear the rest of series two, and I'm very much looking forward to series three, including asexual people. Yay, when it comes. All the best and stay safe, Tristan. Thank you so much for writing in. As I mentioned at the top of the of the top of the show, I loved the interview with the Reverend Richard Coles this week, and I'm so pleased that it made you want to to come and share your story with us. I think that um, it, that that's exactly what I've wanted to do on the podcast is make sure that I have a really diverse range of people so that we hear lots of different perspectives. And you know, please do get in touch. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, I am looking at getting an asexual person uh, to chat to us on the third series. That's definitely going to happen. But if there's other people that you want me to interview, or if you've got a suggestion, get in touch, let me know. Tweet at me, tweet at me and them. Let's see if they'll do the show. I mean, there's lots of people that I ask and they just don't respond. But who knows? Uh, we could we could ask anyone. But please do carry on getting in touch. Thank you, Tristan, for sharing that with me. I totally agree. Blackout circus era from Britney. I mean, we were blessed. It was a great time. I saw that concert. Um, but the concert before was better. Anyway, this isn't a Britney Spears stan podcast. It is a podcast where I do an interview. And I feel like I've waffled more than I normally waffle on the podcast so let's get into that this week I chat to the brilliant Juno Dawson I hope you enjoy this I'm sure you will I think she's absolutely brilliant let's have a listen to that conversation now what a brilliant guest we have for this week's show Juno Dawson is a best-selling novelist screenwriter journalist and columnist for Attitude magazine I have been a fan of her writing for some time and currently I am thoroughly enjoying The Gender Games. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I've been listening to the audiobook and it's brilliant. The book is currently being developed into a TV series, which I am very excited about. I'm delighted to have her on the show today. What a treat for all of us. Welcome to the show, Juno. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's very warm. Yes. Like, it's so warm. It's so warm. But you're in a room with air conditioning, you've just bragged. I am. So. Yeah, was I wasn't planning on it, but I thought, you know what, I can either sit in my flat, which is about 30 degrees yes. right now, or I can go to a temperature precise environment. Very nice. So do you write in an office? You don't write at home? No, I've never been able to do very good work at home. I figured that one out almost as soon as I went full time, which was 2011. And I just basically end up doing the dishwasher. I'll just do another load of laundry, kind of. I just cannot focus because that's like my living environment. Yeah. Whereas pre-writer, I was a teacher. So I had that very clear distinction between work and home. It's amazing the things that you find to do when you're on a deadline. Oh, (laughs) of course. Even worse. So yeah, so I rent a little office space down in town. And you're in Brighton, right? Just outside of Brighton, yeah. Very nice. Um, so let's start. I mean, I know that you're a hugely successful writer and I really want to get onto that in a little bit. But um, to begin with, can we talk about you, you grew up in West Yorkshire. Is that right? I did. Yeah. About sort of 15 minutes outside of Bradford in a place called Bingley, which has sort of faded from 
the mainstream now because the Bradford and Bingley Building Society has kind of ceased to be. Yes. That, that's what we were famous for once upon a time. What's Bingley like? Um, I don't want to have my like access to Bingley revoked. Right, okay, um, sure. <laughs> but um it's it's a small town, it's a suburb. It was once upon a time it was a mill town. Right. It's next to Saltaire, which is a much more beautiful and sort of well-established mill town. So I would say um people, if they can travel, go to Saltaire. It's beautiful. It's a UNESCO World Heritage site. Oh nice. Um, because it is like a little time capsule of like a Victorian mill village. Whereas Bradford, like a lot of northern towns, it has definitely could do with a bit of work. It needs it needs some revitalization. Mm-hmm. It hasn't had the same kind of love that somewhere like Leeds or Manchester has received. I see. And do you still think of yourself as very much a northerner? Because you've been in Brighton for quite a long time now, haven't you? Nearly twenty years. But right. you can't take northernness out of a person. Yeah. I think it's a real mindset. And especially having been down here for as long as I have, and my best friend from school moved to Brighton as well. So the two of us can still kind of bounce off each other. Um, I think there is a hardiness. I don't know if it's in our genes or if it's the, the long, cold winter night <laughs> where you just eat your soup down the mine. <laughs> so what was, what was school life like for you? It was not the one. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, I mean, obviously, I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but queer, sure. youth, queer youth at school um, in the 90s, um, under Section 28. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, was, it was really tough. I think, and I know from my years as a primary school teacher as well, that kids can be vicious. Yeah. Like, at that place where as an adult, you wouldn't say that thing to another person because you realise that person is a human and that to say that to their face is going to cause untold misery and hurt. Children don't have that. Children will just say it. And so obviously I went through school, like so many young people do, it's like a shining beacon of queerness. Like there was no hiding it. You know, I could have wear like a hat and a disguise and people would have still clocked me as being super duper queer. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, my teachers couldn't help. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. It was, it just wasn't, I don't know what it's like in your school, but in my school, it just, it wasn't even like the idea of a conversation about that could come up. It would be insane to yeah. begin a conversation about sexuality. It was shut down. I remember my A-level biology teacher um, once we were doing about communicable diseases and there was like a session on HIV and we were actually told the ones you want to watch out for are the bisexuals. So that was that was kind of the messaging that wow. I was getting. You know, and he was kind of like one of the young, quite hip teachers. And he maybe thought he was being progressive. Lord knows. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And I think at the time, you know, and since, I mean, we all knew as a community that our head of year was actually a lesbian. And I can see now that she was trying to help like she got me involved in like a drama, a stage school, and they she convinced them to waive the fee because my family didn't have much money. Oh, yes, but, I remember this in the book. But, but the problem is, you know, a bunch of kids that used to take the piss out of me were in that drama group, so I just didn't want to go. But I now recognise that she had sort of recognised that queerness in a way that I think we are always quite good at clocking each other in a crowded room, yes. kind of. And so she tried to help, but, you know, it would have been far more effective for her in her position of authority to have been able to say, this is why we are not hateful towards queer people, kids. But of course, that's not something she ever said. No. And I, I had a teacher that was quite visibly a lesbian as well. Like she, she was I'm almost 100% certain. And if you're listening to this, please get in touch with me. But I, she, I, she was definitely in a relationship with a science teacher. And I used to follow them to watch them <laughs> just so that I could see I'd be like oh they're they're in that room together I'm just going to go and stand there and watch them for a bit and I'm sure they probably were like oh yep Susie's Susie's just sort of creeping around the playground again I feel like they probably couldn't have said are you okay do you want to talk about something because they felt like it just wasn't a possibility well they would have potentially lost their jobs well I was in a catholic school as well so yeah they would have definitely lost their jobs yeah exactly there were nuns around again that that very heterosexual organization (laughs) yes the nuns you know the nuns yeah um, so I, I've been, I got to say, I've been enjoying your book so much, you know, yeah. I, I think you're writing so brilliant and I've been loving, I feel like I know you, I feel like 
I'm maybe being more, I don't know, looser than I am with other people that I haven't met that I'm interviewing because I've been listening to the audio book. Mm-hmm. You've been just telling me a story for the last week. so it feels like we so I've been reacting to that I've been laughing at moments I've been thinking at moments and I just feel like we've been having a conversation and I haven't had much to say so um, I mean that's that's, yeah that's what I hope for with that do forgive me if I'm over familiar not at all I connected so much with the stuff from your school life and with the stuff like sitting out of PE (laughs) and trying to find a way to get out of it stuff like the showers and different things like that at school Mm. just I mean I look back now and I'm like that is I mean, it's so exposing. It's so yeah. unnecessary. And it's a shame because when I then became a primary school teacher, I used to love teaching PE. Mm. Um, I just don't think you can expect a bunch of adolescents to get naked around each other. No. I mean, I think that's just so damaging. I mean, and and I think one would hope, although I know this isn't true because I have friends now who have teenage kids, and I'm sad to report that, in some schools, PE teachers have not moved on since the 90s. Oh, no. You know, it should be about sort of fostering a love of physical activity and sort of saying, you know, if this sport isn't for you, don't worry, next week we're going to try a different one. Rather totally. than taking a bunch of kids. So I was, you know, weighed about as much as a feather wet and, you know, was forced to do eight weeks of rugby at a time. So instead I just said, oh, my back hurts and didn't do PE for three years. You know, whereas had they said, right, cool, this week we're going to try rugby, but next week we're doing, you know, badminton or something, you know, I I think I would have found my way. And I just, I still just see generation after generation of traumatized young people who hate any sort of physical activity. And that's probably because there's some fascist screaming at them, get in the shower, kids. And what what young person wants to do that kind of? So what was it? So because it it sounded like your school life, although you had this sort of group of friends that sound brilliant, it sounded like your school life was sort of tough in places. What was it that then made you think, oh, well, I'll go back to school to be a teacher? I think I did have quite a rose-tinted view of what teaching could be. Right. And actually, I had had quite a nice time at primary school. It was it was only really at high school when things got quite dark. Right. And so when I went into primary school teaching, I just sort of thought, well, this is going to be amazing because, you know, I can, you know, one day I can flounce around pretending to be Lady Macbeth and the next day we can do a lot of art and we'll discuss Tracy Emin and then, you know, it's and it's going to be really sick. And on paper teaching should be that but unfortunately it's not because there's so much bureaucracy and and governmental kind of interference but actually when when teachers are left to their own devices it's an incredible creative and like really life-affirming job but unfortunately like all civil servants none of us are really trusted to do our jobs yeah I can imagine that and so how long were you how long were you a primary school teacher and was that down in Brighton it was. So that's when I moved. I moved down to do my teach training. And then I served, served. I wasn't in the army. And <laughs> I, I taught. I taught for six years. And then it was towards the end of that time that I, and it was, I mean, it's all destined because, you know, if I hadn't become a teacher, then I wouldn't have been borrowing young adult fiction from the kids in my class. Right. And, you know, we all know, you know, those books are not written for 11 year olds, but Trust me, 11-year-olds do read them. So I was reading books like Twilight and The Hunger Games and yeah. Noughts and Crosses. And that was when I was like, oh, my gosh, I love I love this sort of type of book so much. I wonder if I've got a novel in me. And the rest is history. So when you were at school, it really sounded like you had, like you were writing what would now be known as fan fiction mm-hmm. of stuff like Doctor Who. Was that, yeah. was that sort of a form of escapism for you? Yeah. I mean, that creativity. I mean... And more importantly, and I've said this elsewhere, it was my way of being a girl. You know, things would have been very different now. Like I would have, you know, had I known then what I know now, I might have skipped the fan fiction years and just said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a girl. But, you know, at the time, you know, being Perry from Doctor Who was my way of living life as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think if during that time I was kind of like working on like a imagination muscle I think that's why I'm so full of imagination because you know my whole childhood was spent imagining what my life would be like if I were a girl so as a young person that was you know writing all of this stuff and was sort of presenting as I guess feminine is that the word you'd use or would you consider yourself sort of a camp when you were younger that's why I really like the word queer yeah sure it is 
you know, it's its own thing, you know, and sometimes you might, you know, because what flags with some kids isn't necessarily campness or femininity. It can be just that, you know, there's a million different things. And I've tried over the last 39 years to try put my finger on, because I used to do this as a teacher as well. I used to be able to clock the queer kids and it, it was no one thing. And that's why I'm a real fan of the word queerness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was not just feminine, but I was really stereotypically feminine as well. Right. You know, like I was really sort of like leaning into all those stereotypes. And so initially you you thought that you were a, a gay man. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're one of our guests that have had sort of two comings out. I know. Just the first one was so much fun. <laughs> and you thought, I couldn't get enough. Do you know what? I just want that roller coaster all over again. <laughs> I want a second ride. Oh, can you imagine? Um, I mean, and that is a sign of the times, you know. I think now, again, if I'd had role models like Rebecca Rue or India Moore or Kim Patras or Paris Lees or Monroe Bergdorf, mm -hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that I would have looked up to those women and said, oh, they are women who started life as boys. I get it now. Um, yes. But those role models were not there. I mean, the, the first time I was really exposed to a transgender woman was Nadia in Big Brother. Yes. Which, when you look at that now, you go, that was so brilliant. And it felt, and she won. Mm. And you sort of think of the time that we're living in now, you know, with all the shit on Twitter and all the fucking mm. bullshit that the, the queer community, but also specifically trans women have to deal with. You, you wouldn't believe that that would have happened after the UK voted her to win Big Brother all those years ago. It seems mad that we seem to have regressed somehow. I think... Because I mean, I've, I've written a lot about this. Is about this why now? Sort of why you know we we all know you know there's evidence of trans people in like ancient Greek pottery. Yes. You know, there's always been trans people. Why is there so much conversation now? And I think it's a chicken and egg thing. So without Nadia, for example, we might not have had the awareness. Right. So a lot of people had literally never seen or heard of a trans person, and so I think young people so I would have been like 20 odd when when I saw Nadia on TV mm -hmm. you know a, a generation of people were about to start joining the dots and so yeah I mean we have we have seen referrals to gender clinics rise but that figures because you know we have more information now you know you can't be what you can't see exactly did it did it feel like so for example when you saw Nadia and you realized that that, that a person like this existed did it feel like things came into focus for you? I mean, how depressing is this? But even Nadia, I didn't put two and two together. Um, I don't know why on reflection. Maybe I just wasn't in that frame of mind or maybe, frankly, given it was my early 20s, I was potentially just too drunk. But um, <laughs> it was really, I think, the big, the key difference was when I moved to London and was just exposed to a lot more trans people Um First of all, strangely, it was a couple of trans men I got to know. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw how just quickly their lives and bodies changed. And, you know, there's just that sort of, you know, I don't want to name his name, but just how this light seemed to go on inside him, you know, this just effortlessness. Yes. And then getting to know other trans women, and particularly trans women my age, and in the book, I write about meeting Isla Holden for the first time, who is just one of the most dignified, classy people. I love in the world. Isla. We had her on series one. She was absolutely brilliant. I, love I mean, her. what a class act, honestly. Yes, so um, brilliant. And importantly, I think as well that Isla is a normal woman with a normal life and a normal family. Yes. And I wonder if that was the last hurdle that I had to overcome. Because, you know, I'd met Paris Lees as well. But Paris is this super glamorous, amazing Vogue journalist. Yeah. And I still didn't quite see her as a real person. I saw her as a celebrity. And maybe that was true of Nadia or Caitlyn Jenner as well. Although I came out around the same time as Caitlyn. Mm -hmm. But... um. You know, I mean, I wonder if that was the last step. I needed to meet real life trans people, not just trans people on television. And how was that when you, after sort of spending time with your your friend who you say, once he transitioned, the sort of light came on. Mm. Was there like a moment where you thought, 
this is going to have to happen. I'm, I'm, I need to, I need to make these changes in my life. I need to do this. Well, I think because I was in, I think I was like 29 by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went about it in a really boringly mundane, mature way. Like I would love to say that it was like an end of an episode of EastEnders. And it was like, <laughs> doof, 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 doof. but instead I did all my research. I got myself into therapy. Um, and actually there was a whole year where I was very much sort of on the fence actually I and also I, think I just want to flag I don't want to call that the boring way I think that is a really I think that sounds like a great way <laughs> to make decisions about I think that's really important to, to flag that sorry go on that, and, well I mean that's something I think that is really important about when whether it's the government or the NHS whoever it is who's looking at the care of trans people and particularly trans youth I think actually giving them time is a really important part of the transition process. Mm-hmm. And so during that first year, I got really excited and was full steam ahead. Mm-hmm. And then I had some therapy and put the brakes on a little bit and did think about, you know, is there a way that I can find that sense of resolve or that sense of peace within myself without going for a medical transition? You know, could I do this? You know, could I just change my pronouns or change you know is there is there a way of doing this that will like minimize the impact on my life but then actually as the year went on I started to really get this real sense of like I think time is running out and I can see my life just around the corner and actually I really want to get to it now you know it's been 30 years when is my life going to begin and from that point and the question that I often sometimes get asked is you know how do you know And the answer is because since that point, my life has literally been better every single day. Yeah. So it turns out, you know, it's transitioning isn't the answer for everyone. You know, you take all your baggage with you. You know, I was anxious before. I'm anxious afterwards. But at least now I'm anxious, but the right gender. You know, that's that's something. Woo, success. And were you writing? throughout this period like how was that to to have all these things going on in your life but also having to be because once you go writing full-time and I know this is a stand-up you gotta keep working you just gotta keep working and so was that hard to manage all of those different things at once I mean especially the first year of my sort of like physical transition was a trip and honestly this sounds and actually I think this is quite an important message I don't know how I got through that year I don't know where I got the strength from I must have borrowed it from somewhere because to go out into the world and defy gender is really really hard and I think that's true of um, butch gay women I think it's true of camp gay men or feminine gay men I think it's true of non-binary people or genderqueer people or trans people to go out into the world and stick two fingers up at gender is really hard because people can be really brutal and was that was that, was that sort of a daily thing of, you know, do you just have to nip to the shops or whatever? Was it constantly like, did you have to think about putting on like almost a, not a physical, but like an emotional armour? Very much so, yeah. Like I remember, you know, there was a point where I realised I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't really leave the house without sort of really trying to sort of express to the world look, I I want to be treated as a woman now. And I understand that you might look at me and you might not get that, but I'm I'm really asking for your help on this. And to do that, you know, I was trying to help the process along. So, you know, I had a lot of hair extensions and, you know, even to just go to the corner shop, I would literally put on the full beat of makeup. Um, You know, I didn't feel comfortable going out in things like just like a tracksuit anymore because I was worried that I would get misgendered and yeah, it was grueling for like a year. It was really, really hard. And now I, I fully recognize, you know, there is this notion in the trans community of passing privilege. Yeah. And, you know, I am, I think I'm like five, seven. And, you know, I've, I, because of my job, I was able to access some cosmetic surgery. So it's been a really, really long time since I've been misgendered. Sorry, Jenny, would you just mind explaining? Because we get loads and loads of our listeners are sort of our straight allies. Could you sort of explain what passing privilege is? Because it would be much yeah, better yeah. coming from you rather than me. Um, so passing privilege is what we call um, the benefits afforded to trans people who get by as male if they're a trans man or female if they're a trans woman so there are lots and lots of trans people in this world you will have walked past them 
dozens of times and just never known they're trans. And that's what we call passing privilege. And it's a privilege because you just get less grief. Um, you know, when I wasn't passing, you know, I used to get laughed at on trains and, you know, people used to say, you're a man or a woman. What is it? Can I look up your skirt? You know, I used to get that kind of harassment quite a lot. Whereas really in the last four years, you know, maybe I'll get the odd look now, but I think by and large, people just see a woman. Um, and I certainly haven't been challenged in years. And that is a real privilege because, you know, I can just go about my day. Firstly, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. That must have been awful. And it must have taken such a strength of character to continue. Like I said, I honestly don't know how I did it. I look back now and I'm just like, I must have... <laughs> My friend Freddie McConnell, who is the director of a really cool film called Seahorse, and um, Freddie McConnell refers to it as gender euphoria, which is you're so excited to be living your life. You, you know, you almost get extra strength from that. You're just so excited to get going. It kind of propels you forward. And I think it must have been because, you know, for me to step outside, you know, the way I looked in 2015 and just be like, hello world, I'm a woman now and please call me Juno. You know, that was kind of, that took some gusto, I think. Oh, for sure. And you talk in the book about, I imagine it was around this time, but about going, was it to the Stonewall event? Yeah, that was, I think that was my first solo outing after I came out publicly. Because, I mean, that's another thing that you have to consider that many others don't, is that you had to do this in a public forum because people knew that you were a writer. You have had a lot of success as a writer. And, you know, you say in the book about having to speak to your publisher about what name to put on the book, that that must have felt like such a heavy weight to have to not only thinking about your family, your friends, everyone in your network, but then also doing it publicly. Was that was that a massive relief once it was done? Yeah, I think I wanted to do it just the once, which is why I teamed up with Patrick Strudwick and we did the BuzzFeed piece, which which I'm proud of. Um, it meant, you know, it was just done the once. I didn't have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But then, again, I wish... It's difficult because I'm such a gob. (laughs) I I, I wish that I had taken some time out a little bit, but I wasn't in a financial position to do so. I had to keep working. And because I sort of came out into just the beginning of this media storm, whereby people were really all of a sudden really fascinated by trans people and like big media organizations like the BBC or ITV were coming to me and saying, oh, congratulations, would you like to come on the news and talk about being trans? And of course, I didn't know what I was talking about. And so sometimes I think when when I read or see things from like 2016 or 17, you know, I feel very naive and it would have potentially been wiser for me to just go away and live a bit. Um, But with the gender games, I think it's a really interesting snapshot of a really turbulent period in my life. Things are very, very different now. But I'm kind of glad that the gender games exists as like a snapshot of that weird time. I mean, it's, it is a really great, I mean, I was about to say read, but that's a lie. I'm, I'm quite dyslexic. I like listening to books. Um, it does give you that snapshot. And I and I love how honest it is. <laughs> now I would have probably been less honest. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask that. Do you, do you feel like you expose too much or... Oh, it's a fine, it's a fine line. I wish what I wish I had done is I remember around the time Gender Games came out, I was sat having a drink. I'm gonna drop some names now. I was having drinks with Catelyn Moran and Damien Barr, who had both Clang, had both done memoirs yep. in recent years. Damien did Maggie and Me, and Catelyn obviously did How to Be a Woman. Yes. And they were both like, there should be a support group for unexpected familial backlash. Because it always it comes from the least expected place. Like all the stuff in that book and my mum was quite upset about when I'd written about, you know, being harassed or like sexually harassed by men. And she was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you've you know, you've told people where you live and now you're going to be in danger. And, you know, I just hadn't predicted that kind of reaction. But that said, I still think when you are writing memoir, you are painting a portrait of yourself. And that is always going to be 
a slightly slant portrait, you know, because of the way you see yourself. Yes. Now, in some people, you know, you may be prone to high self-esteem or painting a very glorious picture of yourself. In others, and I think this is the northern in me jumping out again, I think there is the tendency to be self-depreciating and actually talk yourself down. Yeah. Um, And so it's, you know, it's the first thing they teach you in kind of like GCSE history, isn't it? You've got to be very mindful of who has written this account. Yes. Um, So I, I I don't know how honest a version of me it is. I think certainly on my social media, people have... And I think this is true of anyone with a social media. You know, we we portray a version of ourselves. But um, I think the gender games, it was quite near the knuckle because at the time I was in free fall. I don't think I was smart enough to conceal my life. Wow. I'm, I'm pleased it's out there because I, I think it's such a great read. So I want to move forward to a bit because you were saying before when we first started chatting about how every day since you transitioned has been a better day mm-hmm. it's been a good day and so I want to make sure that we cover that um when you were talking about um was it 2016 2015 where you had that really tough year yeah really awful and then obviously things got a lot better mm. was it just you were more comfortable in your in your own skin or you got more used to be like being able to be yourself I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, sorry. No, I, I think so. I think whoever you are and whoever is listening to this, regardless of how you identify, we all have periods of trauma in our lives, mm-hmm. whether it's a divorce or being made redundant or, you know, and then for a while, and I've referred to it a lot because it was definitely true in my case, it does for a time feel like the sky is falling. It feels like your whole life is kind of shaking. But then it doesn't last forever. It stops, it settles down. And the the good thing about my transition is that this settling coincided with basically me starting on my NHS treatment um, and also undergoing some cosmetic surgery as well. So it was a bit of a perfect storm in that just everything calmed down all at once. Mm-hmm. So heading into 2017, things just got back on track. You know, if if I had sort of slightly blown up my life by coming out, the dust settled and I was able to just get back to my life. And I think as well, you know, your family, I think they needed to witness that I was going to be fine. And I think when my mum and my dad and my sister and my friends recognised how much happier I was, they settled as well. I moved house in Brighton as well, so I moved into this lovely and very sort of nurturing environment I got this great little flat and and you know just everything came together and I think you know in this life everything is temporary and I think that's really important with where we are now in terms of COVID which is this isn't forever yes nothing's forever and and I think you know in those moments it, it, that, that are harder it is so important to to remember that and to have the hope that there is there's, a, there's another side to it there's a coming out of an awful period and going into something that's easier or nicer or kinder or just simply different yes I think they're just that sort of not even attaching a value because I think yeah yeah you're totally right sometimes sometimes you know my life I should probably stress you know my life isn't all like skipping through meadows now like <laughs> making daisy crowns oh, I'm quite disappointed that's how I imagine you in Brighton just some skipping days through meadows some days <laughs> true but then also some days it's still really really hard but still yeah. better and different so different and better um obviously you know now it's been I've been you know Juno now for nearly six years and in that time you know I've experienced street harassment being catcalled so very quickly as a trans woman you transition into all the misogyny that this world has to offer so you know you'd be very naive to think that all of a sudden you know after transitioning you know your problems are magically solved because that's just not the case so a question I wanted to ask you because you're a Stonewall school role model aren't you yes yes because I, I love Stonewall and I do we, we had the brilliant Ruth Hunt on the the first series oh, I love Ruth so much. I love Ruth I love mm. Ruth so much I just think she's so brilliant Ruth is I mean this I mean I hope she's listening because Ruth <laughs> really got me through some dark times some like sort of like you know that there have been periods as a trans woman working in the media where I've been targeted by 
sort of quite hateful groups or individuals. And having Ruth Hunt as just a rock of calm in the middle of all of it. And she always knew exactly the right thing to say as well. She's um, so brilliant, isn't yeah, she? She's a genius. She really is. Yeah, she is. And yeah, we're very, we were very lucky to have her on the show. And she did, yeah, and she did such brilliant work at Stonewall. Um, what I wanted to ask you is how do you feel about the world role model? Oh, well, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And especially, I think, for women mm-hmm. um, and actually men from minority groups as well, mm-hmm. because I think we take very few people and sort of put them on pedestals. And I think there is no better example of this than Jamila Jamil who yes. you know was put up there as like an actress with a twitter account and then and then all of a sudden you know she's a role model and you know heaven help her if she eats a chocolate bar because where did that chocolate come from is it fair trade chocolate you know how many people have died for that chocolate bar oh my god jamila jamil is the daughter of satan yes. you know and you're kind of like oh my gosh this is so unattainable you know nobody can deal with that level of scrutiny um, so I always think that I'm happy to be a role model if, as part of my role modeling, I'm allowed to demonstrate how to fuck up. Because I think we're all going to fuck up. And mm-hmm. it's in how we we get back up and how we make amends and how we do better next time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, yeah, I've made I've made numerous massive fuck ups. And it is it is. Of course, we're humans. My mum my will always say the same thing, which is, come on, then get yourself off, dust yourself off. And yeah, come on, carry on. You go, yeah, okay. But I think you're absolutely right. That's often where you, it's also sometimes when you have like your greatest growing moments where you sort of go, oh, okay, well, I massively did that wrong, but okay, I'm learning now and I'm going to make amends and I'm going to move forward. Do you know what nobody ever says? Nobody ever says I was wrong. And I think we've got to get, as a society, we have got to get so much better at saying, do you know what? I think I was wrong. Yeah, I because think you're I totally think that right. a lot of problems, like all these politicians who just cannot say sorry for love and money. You know that the last thing they will do is apologize or say sorry. And you know that's on both sides of the political spectrum. Yes, sure. Just say, do you know what? I was wrong. And I think there's such a power in that. And I wish people would get better at saying that because I think you know we've seen you know, people in the public eye really kind of shit their pants. And actually, yeah. you know, all you needed to do was take the pants off, you know, kind of yes. say, just take them off, take off the shitty pants. And just say, yeah, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I've learned from that. So what's, what are you up to now, Juno? Um, I am, at the moment, I'm splitting my time between writing the next novel and writing the film and TV, which is really exciting. I really, really wish that somebody had said to me about 10 years ago, you should look into writing television. It's like writing a book, but takes you half the amount of time and pays you about four times better, huh. um, especially American television. So, um, yeah, I'm having an absolute blast because I've got so many ideas in my head. It's TV works a bit differently to publishing. So I can go to a meeting with a director or a production company and say, OK, I've had this idea. And then they will pay you for the idea. Yeah. And that's amazing because nobody in book world is paying you for an idea. So um, I am having so much fun. And I'm very, again, very, very privileged in that I've, I've been able to work all through lockdown pretty much as normally. Did you, because Alice, my partner, and I had to have our wedding postponed. Did you yeah. have to do that as well? We did. We were due to get married on June the 6th. That must have been really... I mean, it was really gutting for us as well, but were you, were you very excited to get married? Because I found it really interesting in the gender games that previously, when equal marriage became a thing, yeah. um, it wasn't something that you felt pulled towards in any way. And that was, that was largely because of, you know, there are a few more gendered roles in society than that of bride and groom. Yes. You know, and trying to put something male on me at any time in my life just didn't fit. Mm-hmm. You know, and so being told groom, 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 I was like, oh, no, just, there was nothing in that appealed. It, I just didn't see it. Um, and so then when I transitioned, I started to think, oh, gosh, well, you know, at least bride is the right gender. You know, I, I don't know if it's yeah. for me. I don't know if I want to get married, but that feels at least conceivable. And so when, you know, when, when I met Max, you know, things we've been, in fact, it's our anniversary today. So we're oh, going to go out some food later. Very um, nice. So it just it felt really normal and really natural and like something that we both wanted to do. But I will say, 
as soon as we went into lockdown, we just slammed on the brakes and we were like, do you know what? If we're not going to be able to do this the way we envisaged, I would rather wait two years. You know, I just, I, I mean, because I, I've got some other friends who, you know, some of Max's friends actually got married in like a tiny little ceremony a couple of weeks ago where they could have like three people present. And I'm just like, nah, that's not what I want. I want yeah. a big old knees up. That's what Alice and I said. As soon as it started happening, we were like, I want to be able to dance to Madonna and jump on my friends. Exactly. I can't I can't I can't do that when we've got to be socially distant. Yeah, it's gonna have to be two meters, everyone. Yeah, no, I couldn't do that. Also, I mean it's very hard to socially distance once you've had a drink. Exactly. I mean, I don't think I'd be able to manage it. Um, so, um, Juno, thank you so much for um, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You were on my list of someone that I really wanted to get on. So thank you so much. Now, we always ask the same question at the end mm-hmm. of the podcast. And you can think of it as a version of yourself or you can think of it as someone that's listening. Um, but say someone was in the, a similar position to what you were in when you were, say, 14, 15. They're having similar feelings. If you could pick up the phone and just give them a bit of advice or a bit of insight what would you say? This is, it's frustrating advice, but I'm going to say that patience is a virtue. I mean, it's a cliche for a reason. And really what I would say to any trans non-binary or questioning person out there is you don't have to make a decision today. The, The pressure to decide can be crippling. And I think actually taking that year or two to figure myself out was really valuable. And it's, it's not doing nothing. Um, I think, especially when you meet up with trans youth, they are desperate to get started. Like tomorrow just cannot come fast enough. But what I will say is all that time where you are forced to wait, it's not doing nothing. You are learning about yourself. You're making relationships with your friends and family. And we always have so much more time than we think we do, I think. That's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you, Juno. Thank you so much to Juno for coming on the show. I loved that conversation and I really hope you did too. As ever, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm all over the socials, but you can also email me hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I hope you have a great week and I'll chat to you next week. Take care.